It's in your pocket and slowly going off. Yes, this week on Download This Show, does your technology need a use-by date? Would it change how you buy if you knew which devices would last longer? Or, on the other side, would you abandon perfectly good tech just because a label said that it was time to upgrade? Plus, the Federal Police are digging into DNA and we have many questions. And are Uber doing enough to deal with assault incidents? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell. And welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is another episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, technology journalist Ariel Bogle. Welcome back to Download This Show. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. And also joining us is creative lead at Unyoked, John O'Sidler. Welcome back to Download This Show. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going dystopian early in the show, is how I've described it. The AFP, the Australian Federal Police, are using a new technology with the very exciting title of Massively Parallel Sequencing. The idea is that it can predict the visual traits of a criminal from the DNA that they leave at a crime scene. We're talking about things like gender and biographical ancestry, eye colour, and in coming months, apparently hair colour as well. This is this is the pitch that they've put forward to the world, which, call me cynical, sounds like it has the potential for enormous issues in terms of profiling and racial bias, but look, I'm going to let Ariel walk me through the specifics. So don't let my kind of preconceptions get in the way. Exactly what are we talking about, Ariel? So, of course, um, Australian police have used DNA testing for quite a while. So if there's DNA left at a crime scene, they may um, collect those samples and then compare it to a suspect if they have one or perhaps a database that they already have collected. And I suppose what's significantly different here is this kind of prediction of visual traits. I think we need to know a lot more about it. You know, the AFP press release about it is very... um, I don't know. It has the sort of smack of a startup, which feels a bit strange for a federal police service, but we can talk, unpack that a little more later. But essentially, it says that MPS works by examining the um, nucleotide base sequence of the DNA that is present in samples collected in crime scenes. And then, yes, as you said, using that to predict things like biological ancestry, eye colour. Uh, it says in coming months, hair colour. Uh, and it also um, may according to the scientists involved at some point, provide facial metrics such as distance between the eyes, eye, nose, ear shape, lip fullness and cheek structure. I think there's just a lot of really sus stuff going on. (laughs) Essentially, we're taking, I guess, as a bit of a a leap that we're assuming that everybody in the AFP and anyone who gets hold of this information will use it in the right way. But there's just a lot here that could be exploited and there's a lot here that could be, uh, I think, utilised for nefarious ends. It's in how they present it, you know, saying that DNA can project gender, well, I, you know, would potentially dispute that. It may predict the sex you were born with, but gender is something else entirely. You know, the way these announcements come um, from police now about new technologies, I feel that they need to be uh, first sort of uh, disclosed to the public that they're even considering this kind of technology and kind of go through a process that brings along community stakeholders because otherwise uh, we've seen, unfortunately, this kind of technology comes with significant historical and social baggage and 
that's, I suppose, what people are reacting to mm. here when they bring up these kinds of words of racial profiling because it is using a sample scene to create, yes, a potentially uh, identifiable profile. But, you know, this, I guess, their baggage that comes with this too is a sort of ongoing dispute about the usefulness and uh, legitimacy of DNA use and evidence. Um, in fact, there is, uh, there was a national review of the reliability of forensic evidence um, that was going on for many months um, in, here in Australia before it was cancelled. But it was examining a number of different kind of forensic techniques that have been brought into some level of questionability. So that was like bullet and hair analysis, also some elements of mixed sample DNA analysis. So the question here was whether these forensic techniques and technologies had a strong evidence base. And we're taking the AFP's word here, I suppose, that this has a strong evidence base, but that's, I suppose, what people are reacting to as well. Whether this has been properly tested, both scientifically, legally, and then, of course, whether it is socially acceptable. Mm, all really good points. I guess one of the things it's probably worth asking here, Jono, is have they given us a sense of what kind of oversight and transparency there will be for the use of this technology? Yeah, there was a really nice line about maintaining public trust and confidence in the use of new biotech, which I think Ariel was saying does feel very startup-y. Uh, aside from that, not heaps. And it kind of reminds me, I think we were both on the show when we talked about it previously, those surveillance laws that were passed, I think it was with ASIO. But again, it was kind of rushed through quite quickly with little room for public oversight. And this seems to be in a similar sort of vein to that, where it's like, oh, we've done this. It's great. Let's go with it. It's passed. We're good. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of public consultation that's been happening, hmm. um, which I think is a bit problematic. I think just to your point also about like how can you know that it's about racial profiling versus, you know, I, I guess, uh, more innocent kind of ideas. I think the biogeographical ancestry thing is a bit off as well. It's kind of pointing to where you think that person may come from and that may also help you make a decision about what they may look like or the characteristics that they might have. And that's problematic for me. Where would the line of it being acceptable begin and end for you? Well, I think it's also, it's related also to the way in which we use the data and the discretion of the person using the data. I think a lot of these kind of technological inventions presume that there's a completely neutral source at the end of it, but there's still people who are mm. taking this data and analyzing it. And I remember seeing a, a piece of software that was analyzing resumes and they were trying to fix the gender imbalance and they realized that historically more of the resumes were male. So the algorithm just ended up choosing more male candidates. And I think that's the thing is that we, we can't discount human involvement of this and humans come with bias. Yeah, and, uh, and that's a sort of recurring issue, right? Where, you know, you build these algorithms and obviously we're talking in general strokes here because we don't know the specifics of how this is going to work and it would be good if we did. But, mm. uh, you know, we, we build algorithms based on data sets and data sets have their own in shortcomings. You know, they will overrepresent on some people, underrepresent on other people. Historical data is not always necessarily the best indicator of future behaviour. And I think one of the, I guess, the bigger questions it's worth kind of broaching here is, given we know so little about it, Ariel, what's the key pieces of information you would like to know about it? Mm, well, I want to point out, of course, like no one, no one on, <laughs> on this uh, show right now is a forensic technology expert. I certainly wouldn't claim that for myself. And so... Has you know, watched CSI we, once, is clearly an yes, expert. 
Absolutely. So we are, or I think, well, certainly I can speak for myself and coming to this from having reported on a variety of predictive policing technologies and the ongoing issues with the evidence base and the ongoing issues with the kind of data that these technologies are built on. So as John was just pointing out, that kind of bias that exists in the data and then, of course, the bias in how it's implemented and used as part of policing. I think it's really important to know that these technologies are not like perfectly predictive. They are still just predictions based on the data fed into them. And so that's the big problem here that we would want to know a lot more about the database on which these sort of tools are being trained, um, how the predictions will are weighted, how they will be used by police. And then, I, you know, if I can just sort of take a little sidestep into a piece of media criticism here, uh, the reason I feel like we don't know exactly that much about how the AFP will be using this technology is because for some reason, you know, exciting new policing technology is so often uh, used by media outlets just as an exciting story. So I was like trawling through, trying to read somebody that done a deep dive of sort of reported work on this technology. And it was really, I was very hard pressed to find anything that didn't just seem like a press release for this AFP technology. So there's a whole um, realm of criticism we can look at here, how the um, AFP has rolled out this technology, what it's so far told the public, and then also how the media just uh, took a press release from the AFP and then bounced it out onto the internet. Coming back to that central question, though, for you, Jono, what sort of strictures would you like to see over technology like this? I'd just like to see some case studies actually used, and I'm sure that they will do it, but I think the public kind of has to get an idea of how this could feasibly be used, not hypothetically be used. I mean, some of the examples that they've given, I think are actually really useful. So like missing persons, for instance, or identifying remains, both of those are, you know, continual issues for police and cause a lot of grief for families. So I think, you know, if they are doing the big PR trail, which it seems like they are at the moment, like actually holding up uh, some evidence of them having used it so people can kind of get a real understanding of where the limits are and what it could, what the understanding can be. Again, I don't really understand the depth of what is capable here. I'm just a bit ner- <laughs> nervy about it, to say the least. So it's 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 uh, hard to, to decide exactly what strictures I put on it, but m- perhaps uh, making sure some of the people who, I guess, having a diversity in the people who are reviewing that data would probably be a very good start. All right. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And Twitter, interestingly, in the last couple of weeks, rolled out a new function, a part of its new privacy policy, which has been weirdly hijacked, Ariel. Can you talk me through what's happened to you? Yes. So Twitter has actually for quite a while now had a policy for uh, its platform where it prevents, it sort of bans people from publishing private information. So that could be things like phone numbers, addresses, you know, kind of the information that you might see when somebody gets doxxed online. And they announced on the 30th of November that that policy would be expanded to media, so photos and video. But, you know, as soon as that policy was announced, I could see a lot of, plenty of sort of internet scholars and academics pointing out the, you know, very high potential for misuse. So, for example, The Verge brought up that incident in a few years ago now where a a man, a black man in Central Park ended up filming a white woman because she was calling the police and 
on him and kind of instigating a situation where he might be put in danger. And they questioned, well, would that get taken down because it wasn't a video that she uh, had consented to having put on the internet, but it was nevertheless important for his safety and also important for kind of accountability and transparency. So those were the kinds of uh, issues that were being brought up right from the start. And immediately these worst use cases were proven to be correct because a number of uh, far-right groups online on platforms like Gab and others ended up coordinating to report a number of extremism researchers and Twitter accounts that uh, spend their time uh, trying to identify dangerous white supremacists in the community, for example. And those accounts got blocked, some of them, uh, their imagery got taken down, even images that were taken from public rallies. So some of those um, Stop the Steal events in the United States, uh, of course, there would be a range of marches from the far right, you know, Unite the Right in Charlottesville, where people were in public standing up for far-right causes and those kinds of photos could be taken down under this policy. Although Twitter has now said that they sort of got overwhelmed by the number of reports that were coming in and did not make the right decisions on some of those cases. So I guess we'll see how it plays out long term. But certainly the uh, worst use cases were flagged right from the start and then we immediately saw it happen, which uh, seems to happen a lot with social media policy changes at the moment. All right. So I'm going to get Jono to sit in a time machine and roll back for me to when the initial announcement of this new policy was brought out. At its core... Yeah, well, very good. Is that Thank you in a DeLorean? That's very good. That's me in a DeLorean, correct. At its core, do you think the policy, before it immediately came up against reality, do you think the policy conceptually had, had value? Yeah, absolutely. And I do... I can understand that with the benefit of hindsight, we could say like... And I know that this is difficult given that we are just trashing the AFP's use of something that's happening in the future. but Look, look at me giving the, you enough rope. <laughs> but I think, you know, like in particularly in the case of Twitter in this instance, I really do think they were trying. I think they were trying to make a concerted effort to deal with one of the many issues that they have on their platform. And they were making a really, really good go at it. And I don't think that they foresaw what was going to happen. I, I admit that other people definitely did, but it's like if you kind of go down that road, you never really do anything because everything you do, there's another hurdle that comes out. I mean, like the far right are a giant hurdle that exists in multiple iterations all over every platform, no matter who you are. Like that's a societal problem that we also have to fix. It's not just up to social media to fix, not that I'm you know, working for Twitter or anything like that. But I do feel like there is a real public interest in what they were trying to do. Did they get it right? No. Can we blame? them uh, i feel like they potentially could have done it better but they really did have good motivations for it so actually let's let's anchor on that point for a second what could have been done to this policy that would have not resulted in in what we saw ariel are there tweaks to the policy that that would have allowed it to do its job and not have this result or is it just a flawed strategy well, it's a good question. And, you know, I agree that at, at its core, there is value in some form of this policy. So, of course, you know, the posting of, say, revenge porn on Twitter, you know, that might fall under this policy. And obviously, it's completely unacceptable. I guess what I would say is this behavior of mass reporting, of brigading is not new. It's It's been there since like the dawn of internet mm -hmm. forums. So, I suppose I would argue that Twitter should 
not necessarily have not implemented this policy because, of course, it has good use cases, but been ready for that kind of response mm. and been ready to have uh, structures in place to ensure that it was not unfairly penalising, you know, working journalists who report on far-right issues or issues of extremism or the sort of accountability accounts that are engaged in this kind of work as well. I, I do feel that the situation was entirely predictable, even though they had uh, the best of intentions. wonder if the challenge that sits at the core of this, Jono, is the fact that Twitter itself happens at such speed that unless you put in sort of, I guess, a machine solution, an algorithmic solution, you're never really going to be able to deal with it. I remember being at work when the Justine Sacco incident happened, um, which was obviously quite a while ago now. Remind me again, kind of which, a, which one that one? Justine Sacco was a, she worked for a global PR company. She was flying uh, to Africa. Yeah. She mentioned, I hope I don't get AIDS as a joke by the time she landed in South Africa. Like there were people at the airport. She'd lost her job. It was the whole, yeah. I think it was in the John Ronson book. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so you've been publicly shamed. Yeah, but what was interesting about that is that hyperspeed was that was like seven years ago, easily, right? Like that was quite a while ago. It's only sped up now. And I think with the case of Twitter, I think about some of the brands I used to work on when we were doing like early stuff on Facebook and we would have pre-moderation, which was like kind of, it's kind of doesn't really exist anymore, but uh, at, at least at a, at a brand level that I've seen, but we would have pre-moderation on every comment that came in. And again, this was more like wall-based stuff for Facebook. So, you know, again, quite old, but like you could see the comments conversation that was happening and you had to have a human kind of deciding whether that conversation was okay to have and I think it's interesting given again kind of the some of the defamation stuff that's happening with social media in Australia at the moment whether that will change some of this and whether the outlets will decide whether they want to get involved but on a pure platform level I don't know if Twitter has the actual grunt you know and the armies of people sitting in the Philippines and elsewhere you know doing all the Facebook moderation to be able to handle this if they did I would suggest that maybe that would be a way of slowing that down because it is really necessary. Well, I think we're sort of talking on parallel issues. I, the private media policy is not the same as the kind of intense virality that Twitter allows and the speed with which uh, things can spread on the platform. I mean, I see that they run side by side, but we're talking about, in one case, a way for people to get you know, material removed from Twitter if they feel that it violates their privacy. And then on the other we have the kind of mechanics and speed of which platform works. And it's been interesting in recent years to see Twitter put sort of sticks in the spokes of the tyre, you know, like trying to see if they can engineer ways to slow things down. So one being, I think, you know, if you retweeted an article for a while there and maybe even still it'll ask you, you know, did you haven't read it yet? Do you want to read it before retweeting it? Mm. You might have come across that one. Yep, still there. They've, they've still of, got that. Yeah, so these are kind of interventions to try and get people to think twice before retweeting or performing some kind of function on the platform. And, you know, the, these have been received quite positively, I think, by um, some people in the kind of who research social media moderation. But there are plenty of more interventions, I think, that people would like to see them try out. Well, certainly, I definitely think there's aspects of the policy that are really important. So I don't think that people should have their private photos um, published on Twitter in a, uh, if somebody is publishing them in a sort of with intention to, you know, like revenge porn, the example I brought mm. up earlier, 
or doxing that involves the publication of like private phone numbers and addresses that with the aim of putting somebody in danger, you know, that is all very unacceptable. And so I think this policy certainly has legitimacy, but I'll just come back to that point. It's in the implementation and being prepared and understanding the, sort of the way the internet works for a want of a better way to put it, these kind of all your policies will be weaponized no matter what, even if they're, in, you know, implemented with the best of intentions and they have the best of use cases, which this policy certainly does, you need to, I would imagine, stress test and think of the worst possible scenario for how your policies can be uh, weaponized or used for ill before bringing them out. And that would be my argument here. All your policies can be weaponized may legitimately be my favorite and most dystopian quote of the show, which is, you know what, there's a lot of competition for that title. Uh, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, technology journalist Ariel Bogle and creative lead at Unyoked, John O'Seidler. Mark Fennell is my name. And over in the US, Uber is set to pay $9 million US dollars to settle a complaint over its sexual assault and harassment reporting in California. Jono, what's happened? Uh, essentially, Uber has been ordered to pay $9 million, which was originally $59 million, which is pretty pretty good discount, I think. Uh, they've settled out of court essentially because they didn't want to hand over information about this, uh, these assaults and harassments that were happening on their ride-sharing platform. Uh, they previously kind of argued that it would be a, a really big violation of privacy for all of their victims. Um, and incidentally, now most of this money is going to a victim's fund. So something has changed somewhere there. And it's also going to kind of shaking up the ride-sharing industry with new industry protocols and stuff like that. So that's really interesting because they've kind of changed their tune a bit. And they're also going to be providing information to the uh, California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC, another fun acronym for today, with a kind of unique identify system. So they want to protect the identities of the survivors while still giving them the data and giving them kind of an opt-in process to make their information on their assault more available. So I think they're just kind of opening themselves up for a bit more transparency while not entirely admitting fault uh, is kind of my read on it. Mm. Ariel, that, that point about, because Uber did argue uh, to what Jono said about disclosing those records publicly, they said could be traumatic for those who'd been assaulted, might discourage reports in the future. What did you make of that argument when they put it up? Well, you know, I, I have some sympathy to the argument and I would note like some other um, organisations, I think RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network, also raised some concerns about these sort of assault reports from Uber being handed to California officials. They raised concerns, according to the BBC, about whether they could treat the sensitive information appropriately with the appropriate care. You know, I do wonder if uh, the survivors or the people that had been affected by assaults or harassment, maybe they wouldn't want their data to be handed wholesale to uh, Mm. California regulators. But potentially, I don't, you know, see why Uber could not have potentially contacted them and asked for permission, although I understand too that maybe people wouldn't want to be contacted by Uber and asked about a really horrific incident in their life. Um, So, you know, it's a very sensitive topic and, you know, it it is one that has been brought up about Uber and reporting for many years, including here in Australia. I think last month there was a report in the Sydney Morning Herald that Uber had received more than 500 complaints of sexual misconduct and assault over six months from passengers and drivers, but that, you know, in general, their systems for dealing with them failed to remove alleged perpetrators from the platform. So this is a global issue for Uber in terms of both the transparency and accountability of the company. 
Harold, do you think the terms of this deal and the changes that are being brought about in relation to it, do you think they are a step in the right direction or are they or are there still kind of core issues that are not being addressed? I think it's a step in the right direction that Uber will be providing reports um, to California regulators now and not using people's names but rather like unique identifiers. That will be useful, I think, because in general, you know, a lot of the time these issues are ones that we just, we need to know about to talk about. And so ensuring that data is like going from Uber, a private company that's worked pretty hard to kind of keep this information off the table of regulators now has to report to regulators. I think that's a good step. Uh, There's also, I think, an opt-in process for people who want to provide more information about what happened to state officials. I mean, I guess we'll see how that works and how that opt-in process works as well. But some steps in the right direction, I guess we'll see how this plays out long-term uh, and maybe whether it gets replicated globally for Uber as well because it's certainly not a, an issue unique to California. I mean, we should also point out that Uber is not the only ride-sharing company that has issues with this. Yeah. Uh, Lyft in particular in the US, you know, I think they had like more than 4,000 incidents of sexual assaults in like two years from the first safety report. I think it's just like one of those things where we're only just starting to hear about it. So I think it definitely is a, a step in the right direction. I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Twitter, where you've got like this massive ecosystem. I think Uber does like 2 billion rides a year or something in the US alone. Like it's just mental, right? The amount of actual people riding on that platform and the amount of people going through it. And again, you need to be able to have the uh, the system set up and the people involved to actually be able to handle this issue. And arguably they haven't to date. And this may actually kind of spur them into action into doing it. Download this show is what you're listening to. And lastly, here on the program, most of us will be familiar with that experience where you reach a point where you look down at your phone or your laptop or your tablet and go, yeah, you're past it now. But should technology come with expiry dates? It's an idea that's been uh, brought up by the Productivity Commission. Largely the, the work there has been focusing on the right to repair your technology. But one of the other interesting things it's brought up is this idea that maybe technology, Jono, should come with a use by date. What do you think of this idea? I am a prime candidate for this. I have just gotten a new iPhone because mine kept flipping out on me uh, and kind of freezing uh, in the middle of stuff. And the laptop, which I'm using to kind of plug my microphone in, dies at about 30%. So (laughs) they've both definitely reached their use by date. I have kind of mixed feelings about this. Obviously, in terms of a consumer perspective, I think it is necessary because you get the idea that your phone will last for five years, or at least they used to when we were growing up and now they don't and it becomes frustrating and limiting. But by the same token, I think it can encourage more waste. Um, A lot of these things don't break down, they become part of our landfill and it may encourage people to get rid of them earlier than they need to because sometimes they do last and sometimes they are fine. And you know, my iPhone before this lasted for six years and it was great. So the idea that like, oh, we've hit two years, it's kind of like that plaid obsolescence that is already built into a lot of devices. Um, and I'm not sure we should necessarily be encouraging it. Well, I think it would influence me. Like, you know, if I was choosing between uh, two toasters and one said it's going to last for seven years and the other said had a sticker that said it would last only for five, I think I would, you know, cost-benefit analysis right. maybe get the one. That's exactly if, what I'm but, thinking, yeah. The caveat, though, being is can I rely on the sticker? So I'd want to know that behind that sticker was a kind of reliable testing regime that meant that it really would be seven and not five and it wasn't something that the company could just whack on and say, well, we last seven years without having to put up any proof about that. 
uh, durability. So, yeah, I think I'm kind of into this regime, but only if if the sort of data behind it is reliable and tested and, you know, accountable. Do you think it would change your purchasing choices, Dono, if you, if you could do that thing where, you know, it's like you go to the shops and you see which milk has the longest uh, used by date and you pick up that one, right? Do you think it would change your behaviour if you had some sense of the when the technology was going to end, as it were? I think it would. I think there are always people who buy smeg toasters which just go on the fritz because they look good and they don't really care. And I think it's the same. I mean, iPhones are a great example. I mean, like they, in my experience, they break down, you know, faster than, than other phones, but they've obviously got the brand involved and I think we shouldn't underestimate the branding. But yeah, I always go for the milk at the back. Would I go for the dishwasher that's got a seven years versus a five years? I think to Ariel's point, I don't trust those stickers at all unless they've got, like really, I, like I had friends who used to work for like Choice, for instance, like mm. if they had a Choice sticker on it and Choice's entire job is to make sure that that seven years is seven years, then yeah, I would buy it. But like most of those don't do that. It's the same as saying like nine out of 10 dentists, in my opinion. (laughs) All right. That's all we've got time for on the show this week. Huge thank you to our guests this week. Ariel Bogle, technology journalist. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Mark. And John O'Sidler, creative lead at Unyoked. Thanks again. Thank you. Stay classy. (laughs) Oh my God. You've got a catchphrase now. Goodness. Uh, Ariel I was shanking man the other day. Ariel and I are going to have to go uh, acquire one. We can work on that for the next episode. Uh, and with Absolutely. that, I shall leave you. My name's Mark Fennell. And thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.